0: The Daily Rios Digest, April seventeenth, twenty twenty two. Marvel Monday. I know, and I realize, that I don't talk much about Marvel Comics, so I thought I'd devote an entire segment this week to the company based on things that I've read or seen or things that I uh, noticed for upcoming books. And I'm going to start with live-action stuff first because that's where I'm most involved, I guess you could say. So I am watching all of the Marvel stuff movies, and TV from two different starting points or two different points within the larger narrative. I did a bunch of episodes way back uh, focusing on the many phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, This would be episodes 422, 423, and 424 where I took a a look at Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3. I think what I was doing was um, re-watching all of the Marvel movies in anticipation for Infinity War, which was coming out at that time. So I think I stopped right before Infinity War, which means I probably have to talk about things like Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and then Spider-Man Far From Home, and then start a whole new uh, series of episodes on Phase Four, which is where I'm, where I'm kind of at now. Um, even though I'm jumping around, now the other place, the other way that I'm watching the Marvel Universe is, I am trying to watch all of the TV stuff as well in order. Which means right now I am in Agent Carter, season two. Agents of Shield season three, Luke Cage Season One, and that'll put me to the end of 2016. And then with 2017, I'll have things like Legion season one, Iron Fist and Defender Season One, Inhumans, The Gifted, Runaways, etc. I'm I am doing them all, regardless of where they fit, how they fit, etc. For instance, I didn't realize that they actually put out a Hellstrom series on Hulu that ran for one season. I think it was like ten episodes or something. Um, so, so that's that's kind of like the MCU from the beginning. Uh, really, the, the the second way that I'm I'm looking at all this stuff is kind of like this Phase Four stuff, where I'm skipping ahead and trying to watch um, the Disney Plus stuff in order along with whatever movie might come out in between. So, for instance, I've seen WandaVision, I've seen Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I really liked, and I just started Loki, and I'm up to episode number three for Loki. Loki's interesting. That third episode was, uh, to be honest, I fell asleep during the middle of it. Um, I don't know. It's... It's an interesting show. I mean, it's clearly Doctor Who. It's clearly Legends of Tomorrow. Even if it is based on stuff within the the 90s Marvel Universe or 90s Marvel's comics, um, it, it feels a little derivative uh, in one way or another. And that's not a new thought because I checked out some reviews and apparently other people think that way too. So um, so I'm starting... So as I mentioned, I'm watching the MCU develop all the way through all of the phases And then I am currently in Phase 4 with this Disney Plus stuff, although I have to catch up, right? Like, I haven't seen What If? And I haven't seen uh, Hawkeye and the current Moon Knight series. You know, I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting to watch it all develop. Now, in terms of comics, I am not buying any Marvel comics at the moment. The last thing that I picked up was Marvel Timeless, the one-shot, because I'm, I'm loving everything Kang, and Kang is one of my favorite villains. Um, and I also read the Defenders miniseries by Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez, because Al Ewing is a writer that I really like, and or that I should say that I'm starting to really like, uh, because I am very late when it comes to Al Ewing comics. Um, but also Javier Rodriguez is just amazing. I really do like his artwork. Everything else, I am reading, you know, digitally, whatever that means. (laughs) Um, Because there's just not a lot that I find interesting that I need to read at the moment. You know, I feel like I can keep tabs on the Marvel Universe without actually having to read it, Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. If a comic has America in it, America Chavez, I will probably get it, but other than that, mm, I don't think so. Speaking of Al Ewing, in the latest previews, this would be April previews for book shipping in June. Two series by Al Ewing. Another Defenders miniseries for five issues, Defenders Beyond. Featuring young Loki, the God of Stories, Blue Marvel, America Chavez, Tigra, who I also like, and Galactus's mom. Yep, that's right, Galactus's mom. <laughs> if you read the last Defender series, you know what I'm talking about. And then apparently Al Ewing is writing an Ant-Man five-issue miniseries with art by Tom Riley. And this is going to be an exploration of every hero, past, present, and future called Ant-Man, as told as only Al Ewing can tell it, I imagine. Now, speaking of Kang, there was an interesting Twitter post or Twitter thread... That Kurt Busiek wrote on his uh, on his page, talking about Avengers Forever, uh, actually talking about a larger topic and then roping Avengers Forever into it. And I'm going to read it because I actually I think it's interesting, uh, especially if you love Avengers Forever, um, especially if you like some behind the scenes stuff. So Kurt writes, there was a thing going around in recent days about what you'd like for people who read comics to understand about making comics. And that made me think. It ain't hardly crucial, but I'd like it if more people knew that what happens in a series is not necessarily what that series was created for. For instance, I doubt most people think that when Kirby and Lee created the Avengers, that's that just because Captain America came back in issue 4, it must have been the intent of the series. It was something they came up with along the way. But I will see articles for the rest of my life stating as fact that Avengers Forever was created to fix Marvel continuity problems. It wasn't. I would never pitch a series as a way of solving continuity problems. <laughs> that should be that should be plastered above uh, John Byrne's work table. Um, Avengers Forever was created as a way... Kurt Busiek didn't say that. I said that. (laughs) All right, now back to Busiek. Avengers Forever was created as a way to have an Avengers project Carlos Pacheco could draw. He had requested one as part of a contract negotiation. Now, first of all, that's interesting, right? Maybe that's something readers don't realize, that when some of these artists get exclusive contracts or they want to, you know, work within a company, they sometimes will throw in things like that, you know, make sure I get a chance to work on blah, 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 or I only want to do miniseries, et cetera. All right, back to Kurt. Uh, The specific story idea we came up with happened because we had to abandon the original idea we had had at the last minute and had to come up with something else fast. So Carlos could start drawing something. The only thing I could come up with in a hurry was this plan I had for a running subplot in the main Avengers book about Kang and Immortus having a time war. So I asked George Perez if I could pull that subplot from the main book and give it to Carlos. And George said, sure, go ahead. Once we had a story set up about Kang versus Immortus, it made sense for Kang to be the blustery, macho, fight like a man guy, and Immortus to be the crafty schemer. But that meant Immortus needed to have crafty schemes. So if he had been manipulating Avengers history to his own ends, what exactly was he doing? We could make up new stuff, or we could use old continuity as evidence of his crafty schemes by having him have arranged things that way, on purpose. And you know, using old Marvel continuity had worked out pretty well for me in Marvels, so why not? It was only when we started down that road that we realized that it meant showing that some of what you thought you knew was wrong. But we wouldn't have gotten there without all the other stuff first. A lot of Avengers Forever was made up on the fly. We knew vaguely where we were headed, but we hadn't had time to think it it all out beforehand. When we started, I asked Tom Brevoort, can we have an issue 13 if we need it? Because we have such a sketchy plan that I don't know if we're going to be able to land clean in issue 12. Turned out we could, but if we needed a 13 issue, we could have had it. So the Avengers riding around in Ramatut's Sphinx wasn't in the original plan. The multiple space phantoms were made up on the fly. The Forever Crystal was created as a capper for Act 1 without knowing what it would do in Act 3 or later. It was a blast pl- uh, plotting the book that way, and we made it work. But it wasn't all intended ahead of time. Similarly, when I see people saying I pitched the Return of Gene Grey story... In order to facilitate X-Factor, it's not remotely true. I never pitched it. I came up with it for fun and then told it to another writer in idle conversation. And it took off from there. And nobody had any idea there would ever be an X-Factor book in 1990 when I came up with the idea or in 1983 when I told it to Roger Stern. A ton of stuff that happens in comics isn't planned in advance. We just make up we, we make up stuff either for the fun of it or because we need an idea fast. And sometimes you make up a concept such as Triathlon got the 3D man's powers from the Triune understanding who are secretly bad guys. Or Silverclaw's the daughter of a goddess. Knowing that you'll be able to go somewhere with them even if you don't specifically know where yet. So that's pretty great. I mean, again, I kind of, I think I talked about this in one of the last digests about,, um, oh yeah, it had to do with Dick Giordano and and his last the last meanwhile column I discussed about how they have visions and ideas, and sometimes they don't ever get close to those visions and ideas. Things change along the way. Um, new ideas pop up. Uh, an artist wants to draw something marketing says you can't use this character etc cetera, etc cetera. so i really like that twitter thread because first of all i love avengers forever such a good book so that little bit of back um, behind the scenes stuff is pretty great uh, lastly some other marvel stuff i am ready to read heroes Reborn. i am out of all of the onslaught stuff which was interesting unto itself um, Perhaps the one notion out of Onslaught that I really liked, the Watcher kept popping up all over the place and would say things like, the age of wonders had ended. Uh, let's share the vision of what is to come, that which I call Heroes Reborn. So that whole thing about the age of wonders, you know, like um, that that's what the Marvel Universe was called up to Onslaught, and then we would get Heroes Reborn. So, Or the Age of Heroes, you know. I love all that stuff. And um, between that and some of the stuff going on in Loki, I I really need to read uh, the Quasar run by Mark Grunewald because I need to see all this cosmology stuff come to life. You know, we get a tease of it in Infinity Gauntlet, and I just want more. Uh, I did read, finally finished after many years, Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon and by John Cassaday. Um, um, sidestepping all of Joss Whedon's problematic issues these days, that run is pretty good, and it's oddly emotional. And it has some great scenes for White Queen and and Peter and Kitty, and touches on the larger X Men universe and some really funny moments. Um, it's good. It's a it's a good run, and I wanted to finally finish it. Mostly because I'm, I'm listening to old episodes of the Uncanny X-Cast, but also because I just wanted to read it, right? Um, I did that with Planetary, finally finished that series. Astonishing X-Men was right up there. Uh, so I plan on going back to my Uncanny X-Men read, starting from Giant Size, right? I am right at the start of John Byrne. And Ed Moore, who is one of the co-hosts of uh, Boom Addiction, and also a new show with Stephen Orr called The Superman Super Show provided me with scans for a Foom magazine article on the Uncanny X-Men at the time of Giant Size, which I wanted to read because I wanted to read the X-Men not only in their title, but when they popped up throughout the Marvel Universe in the mid-70s because this is the the new X-Men at the time with Wolverine and Banshee and Storm and Nightcrawler. Colossus. I wanted to see how they developed as a team throughout the larger Marvel Universe. So I'm really excited to read that article. I've had it for a while. Ed sent those scans uh, a long time ago. Um, And I just keep pushing it off and pushing it off. But I'm going to get to it soon. So there you go. That's kind of like the scope of where my Marvel Universe intake is between the live action stuff and my comics. And I thought I would just talk about it because, as I said, I don't talk a lot about Marvel, you know, for various reasons. And uh, I know a lot of you still read Marvel. So let me know your thoughts. What are you excited about? Are you excited about this, um, whatever it is, but this whole battle between X-Men and Inhumans and, um, no, excuse me, <laughs> X-Men's, X-Men Men's X and the Eternals and the Avengers, You know, because we are at the 10th anniversary of the first Avengers versus X-Men event, and we've had the X-Men and Inhumans, and now we're mixing it up with the Eternals because, of course, there was a movie. So um, there's that. There's um, something coming out. Uh, Or or we just wrapped up the whole Dark Reign stuff and the Reckoning War, etc. So let me know. Let me know what you think about the state of Marvel these days.
1: Breathing fire from her hairy snout Burning bridge after bridge Her glowing red eyes striking terror In the heart of anyone Unfortunate enough to look in her hideous face Her gnarled cow-like hooves Destroying everything in our path, stopping only to feed every 10 minutes, and make one sitcom decades ago.
0: So it's April 12th, and the news today uh, reported that Gilbert Gottfried has passed away. I don't know how Gilbert came into my awareness. In the 80s, I don't know if it was from Beverly Hills Cop or his appearance on the Superboy TV show. Maybe there were some commercials. I mean, certainly by the time Aladdin came out and he played Iago, uh, I knew who Gilbert was. I, I, I don't know. Was it the voice? Was it the comedian? I don't know. Um, where I knew Gilbert from. Now, I was listening to Howard Stern in the early 90s, uh, maybe even late 80s. I don't remember how early I jumped on to listening to Howard Stern, but Gilbert was a a frequent guest, and that's really where I got to learn about who Gilbert was and his brand of humor and his ins... You know, his... Insensitive nature on that show, and and just how inappropriate he was, and really came on the show just to laugh, not even to necessarily make other people laugh. Maybe it was just to make himself laugh, and that's something I can certainly appreciate. Um, but you know, the Howard Stern show, Gilbert would come on sometimes during the news segment and would make inappropriate jokes or laugh at things, sound effects that Fred would play. And other times he would come on and kind of spoof a situation, depending on what was happening. Like, maybe he would come on and spoof Andrew Dice Clay. Or when Howard was having a battle between Howard and John Bon Jovi and Sam Kinison, uh, there was this whole thing called the Man-Dude War. Because during their arguments, they kept saying man and dude and man and dude and... Gilbert came in, and he caught that, and his his brand of humor, he laid right into this whole thing about, after saying something, just always saying man or dude, and it became this thing. It was like a really interesting observation that he brought into the show. And then, of course, all of his impersonations as Dracula and as Groucho Marx and older comedians, just so, so good. Um... In the past number of years, maybe 10 years or so, uh, Gilbert has put out a podcast called The Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And I remember catching it early on, and his first guest was Dick Cavett. And I was listening to it, and I was going, oh my god, this is a wealth of of old Hollywood information and obscure TV shows, and obscure actors and comedians. And Gilbert just would rattle this stuff off in a way that clearly, like, his his mind as a kid must have just captured all of this stuff. You know, Abbott and Costello, and, uh, you know, Bella Lugosi, and uh, the old horror movies, and sci-fi movies, and just, just constant, just a wealth of information. And his podcast at that, I remember, I think I posted on The Daily Rio somewhere that it was my new favorite podcast at the time. He was bringing in all of these guests, you know, like uh, the actor who played Eddie Munster and um, the agent on Get Smart. Not the main agent, but his his girl partner. I don't remember their names. Uh, And just the stories that they had and the way Gilbert was was able to pull out um, weird facts that he knew, and he was still his insensitive self and would make, rec- I mean, there's a Weird Al Yankovic interview where he tells the worst jokes, and and the guest just has to kind of sit there and either laugh or just, I don't know, maybe because it was Gilbert, just kind of accept it. Um, there's a really great video on YouTube. You can look up, Gilbert on Hollywood Squares, it's called the you fool segment that is just brilliant. I posted it on my Facebook Facebook. It's so funny. And he is someone, he's a comedian who will just run things into the ground again because it makes him funny. It makes himself laugh, I mean. And if people want to laugh, great. I mean, I think my mom when she hears his voice just goes into little fits and she can't take it, but And it's not even that he's a really good actor and he's not necessarily the greatest comedian. He just has that thing. And unfortunately, that thing is no longer around. But if you haven't heard his podcast, he does it with a co-host, and a co-host named Frank. And it is really good, especially if you love any movies and TV shows prior to, I don't know, the 60s and prior to the 70s, you know. He just is—he's a wealth of information, and um, you can kind of bounce around. Like, pick a a guest that you really like, and just get into it that way. Although I have to say, that first Dick Cavett, the very first episode with Dick Cavett, is probably still my favorite, um, just because of the stuff they get up to and the stuff they talk about is just so funny. So. I did know that Gilbert was sick for a while, had certain conditions, but um, just to hear that he had passed away was sad. So I just wanted to spend a few moments to talk about Gilbert Gottfried because he has made me laugh. He has brought me to tears. And um, losing comedians is, is, is not fun because they can look at the world in interesting ways. And um, he was someone who looked at the world in his own very unique way. So sad to see Gilbert go. Um, But glad that um, I was able to talk about him for a little bit here.
2: Well, Flashpoint Beyond picks up shortly after Flashpoint ended, Thomas Wayne wakes up back in the Flashpoint world, not understanding exactly what's happened, why is everything back to what he knows as his life? And the mystery is what the hell's happening? While we're following Thomas Wayne's story in the Flashpoint universe, We also are gonna be following Bruce Wayne in our universe. And then meeting Jeremy and Tim, I've been fans of both their work at DC already, and they're great people and great brains, and they come at things very differently, and so we all jam together.
1: Like everybody
2: else, you know, that world of possibilities that Flashpoint represented is something that I've always thought about. That's what you want when you come to the Flashpoint universe. You wanna see characters that you're semi-familiar with, but the little surprises that change it. But it really came to, before everyone signed on, I think was like, why do it? Like, why are we going back to Flashpoint? This very personal, emotional story has much bigger ramifications on the DC universe. People would look at Flashpoint Beyond and think, oh, this is a, you know, this will be a fun little contained story. I think those people probably have another thing coming. We knew that there was this giant conflict between the Amazonians and the Atlanteans that we will kind of see where that ended up. Superman comes in, but there's a whole new layer to Superman's story. It gives even more twists on who the man of tomorrow is in this universe. But also different takes on villains, from the scavenger, who's a bit of an obscure Aquaman villain, to the rogues, they're all they're all in here. Every time Zirvanica turns in a new page, it's like, oh, we're all like, oh my God, this is our favorite page so far.
1: There are small, detailed, Beautiful character moments that Zermanica is putting on the page.
2: This is the work of his career. I think people are going to be blown away by his work. Flashpoint Beyond does bring back some characters and play with some characters that haven't been at the forefront of the DC Universe in a while, and you will see plans with them going forward.
0: There you go. Just a whole bunch of information concerning Flashpoint Beyond, issue number number zero, and then the upcoming miniseries. For this New Comics Wednesday, for books shipping, uh, the week of April 13th, Flashpoint Beyond is $5.99. You heard from Jeff Johns, also Jeremy Adams, and Tim Sheridan. Um, This is... You know, I wasn't going to get this miniseries, but then DCBS offered it... um, at a special discount, uh, well after the first, second issue was solicited and they were like, I, I don't know, maybe it was 50% off or something. And they said, you know, you can get all of the issues, um, uh, you know, after the fact. And I was like, okay. So then I wound up actually pre-ordering all the issues now. And I have not even read all of the original Flashpoint event that kicked off the whole new 52. I mean, that was, that was, you know, in the first segment I talked about how I have all of these Marvel reading points that I'm jumping into, uh, you know, during the Onslaught era or during the 70s X-Men era, and it's the same thing with DC. I have several points that I want to start reading from, and one of them is Flashpoint. One of them is either the stuff leading up to Flashpoint, Flashpoint itself, the New 52... Um, So I'm buying this, and I haven't even read the original Flashpoint. You know, that makes sense. So anyway, let's go to Image Comics. Image Comics Anthology, one of 12, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the first Image Comic, with a year-long parade of all-new stories from various creators, including Jeff Johns. These stories, uh, this uh, anthology... Is a combination of ongoing seri- serials and standalone short stories, much like the Daily Rios. And the inaugural issue kicks off with the first chapters of two 12 part stories The Blizzard by Jeff Johns and Andrea Moody, and Red Stitches by Brendan Fletcher and Erica Henderson. And then uh, the opening installments of a trio of three parters. Gospel for a New Century by Wyatt Kennedy and Luana Vecchio, Loop Hopeless by Mirko Andolfo, Mirka Andolfo, Shift by Kyle Higgins and Daniel D. Niculo, and then you also get a first look at Declan Shelby's upcoming Old Dog series and an original ongoing comic strip by Scotty Young, $5.99. Uh, that's an I, I like that. I like that as a celebration for Image Comics, all new works, trying to gather creators from you know various uh, corners of either their publishing line or other creators, and putting it to putting it together so that way they don't have to focus on you know twelve new comics. They can just put it all in in this anthology. And then we have a hardcover of Arrow Smith, the the original series called So Smart in Their Fine Uniforms, $24.99, collecting the original six-issue series. Kurt Busick and um, Carlos Pacheco, Jesus Moreno, Alex Sinclair, José Rafael, Fonteriz, um, José Villarubia, and if you don't know what this is about, it's about young Fletcher Arrowsmith learning the true cost of war in an alternate history where dragons and magic spells are as much a part of World War I as bullets and barbed wire. And apparently the artwork in this edition will present the art as Pacheco originally intended. Whatever that means. From Dark Horse Comics, we have Breakout 1 of 4. Zach Kaplan, Wilton Santos, Adam Gorham, colored by Jason Wardy, $3.99. When massive cube spaceships, from another dimension, materialize over our cities and routinely abduct teenagers to be held inside their mysterious floating prisons, Liam Liam Watts' younger brother Tommy is taken. But while governments and adults across the world accept this loss as inevitable, Liam refuses to give up hope. Now, in a take-back-our-future anthem, Liam assembles a skilled team of ordinary high school students to risk it all, but can they pull off the impossible and succeed in an out-of-this-world prison break? And for Marvel, we have the 100th issue of Elektra, with writer Ann Ascenti and a bunch of other creators, $4.99, bringing uh, her story together together. Everything that has happened in her long and storied life has been leading to this, the 100th issue bearing her name, and the starting point of what is to come. I don't necessarily... I know Elektra has uh, put on the Daredevil mantle. I don't know if this is going to touch on that. But I like anniversary issues, so I wanted to point it out here on New Comics Wednesday. And that's it. Those are your recommendations, a short list for this week. Let's take a look at another publisher this week, as today, April 14th, IDW dropped an announcement that I thought was interesting, and I wanted to give it a little spotlight here. That music that you just heard is from their YouTube video uh, for the announcement. IDW has unveiled nine new original comic book projects set for release beginning in July of 2022, as part of a new initiative. While the focus, focus is on creating new comic book IP, following the publishing of the comics, the IDW Entertainment Group will work to potentially develop the IP for film, television, and other entertainment mediums. Genres include crime thriller, supernatural horror, science fiction, and epic fantasy. The nine projects starting with Scott Snyder's Dark Spaces Wildfire in July, are as follows. So Dark Spaces Wildfire, a thriller series by Snyder, and art by Hayden Sherman, follows a group of female inmate firefighters deep into the smoldering California hills, where their desperate heist of a burning mansion will lead them to the score of a lifetime or a deadly trap. Okay. I guess Scott Snyder, that's a a name, right? That's a name that brings readers, so we'll see if that brings readers to that IDW project. We have True Cult, a five-issue miniseries written by Scott Bryan Wilson, with art by Leanna Kangas, introducing Marty Tarantella, a down-on-his-luck loser whose last-ditch scheme to escape a lifetime of fast-food service Sets him on a collision course with a cult of violent, devil-worshipping lunatics. I kind of wish they would have given us a little bit more. Is this a comedy? Is it serious? Is, is it a drama? Um, you know, what what's the tone of that one? So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's enough of a premise for me. Crashing, a five-issue miniseries written by Matthew Klein with art by Morgan Beam throws open the doors of an emergency room filled with casualties of a super, superhuman war where Rose Osler, a doctor on her own path of addiction and recovery, faces the most dangerous day of her medical career. Kind of interesting. I, 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 that, I could see me reading the first issue of that series. Earth Divers, an ongoing series written by Stephen Graham Jones with art by David Gianfellis unites four indigenous survivors in an apocalyptic near future as they embark on a bloody one-way mission to save the world by traveling back in time to kill Christopher Columbus and prevent the creation of America. Love that. (laughs) I love that premise. Dead Seas, a six-issue miniseries written by Kevin Scott with art by Nick Brokenshire, transforms a cynical convict into a reluctant hero when he's trapped on a sinking prison ship, swarming with ghosts, can he unite desperate criminals, pirates, and brutal guards as they try to escape a watery grave? Now, Nick Brokenshire, that's a name that I learned way back from CG during the CGS days. We had a contest with Freddie Williams where we were going to pick, or Freddie was going to pick, um... Uh, certain winners that entered an art contest and he would give them his thoughts and and kind of talk about whatever piece they had presented. And Nick Brokenshire was one of those contestants. I don't remember if he was the winner, but he definitely was one of the contestants. So uh, I've been following Nick's Instagram or, or Twitter, making sure I, I try to catch his name whenever I can. Then we have Golgotha Motor Mountain a five-issue miniseries by Matthew Ehrman and Lonnie Nadler with art by Ryan Lee. This is a high-octane redneck motor massacre about two meth-cooking brothers and their attempt to make it home in one piece as all manner of cosmic alien horrors are hot on their trail. Again, not really sure that's uh, a premise I would be into. Is it a comedy? Is it... um more action, you know, uh, I don't know. I don’t know if I'd be into that. Arca, an original graphic novel written by Van Jensen with art by Jesse Lonergan, leaves a dying earth behind as billionaires establish a luxury, a luxurious new society out among the stars, tended to by teenage indentured servants. But one girl discovers that the good life promised for their years of servitude was a lie. I'm always going to read anything sci-fi. This is a graphic novel, so I'll have to see from any kind of preview pages what I think of it. The Sin Bin, a six-issue miniseries written by Robbie Thompson with art by Molly Murakami, hits the road with washed-up hockey player Dale Dukes Duquesne, who moonlights as a monster hunter during away games with his daughter Kat in tow, hoping to find her mother's killer. Again, not sure of that premise. The Hunger and the Dusk, a 12-issue storyline written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Chris Wildgoose, upends an age-old conflict between humans and orcs by introducing a new, deadlier species. Fragile alliances form, and unexpected romances blossom, as former enemies wade into battle together to save their two races. Could be interesting. Uh, And that's the last one there. Additionally, IDW has additional projects underway for 2023 and beyond, including a comic book series by John Ridley and several ongoing graphic novels, original graphic novels, aimed at middle grade and young A audiences. So they're doing some kind of shift away from major license properties, I imagine, at IDW. I thought I read somewhere that they, they no longer are going to have the Transformers license or or maybe the Hasbro stuff, but I don't quote me on that. Um, if they have the channels to try to push some of this stuff into other media, uh, you know, go for it. I mean, it's original properties. It's only going to bring their name to the forefront. Um, not, that, not that some of those necessarily appeal to me, but again, I have to see some preview pages. I'm not familiar with many of those creators, but I, I'll give them a look. I'm always trying to, uh, at least try to take a look at first issues, uh, especially with initiatives such as this. So, there you go. Hopefully, um, those of you who heard that, uh, you might be interested in some of those. So we'll, we'll, I guess we'll take a look at those starting in July. To Danger Street Part 8 takes us to First Issue Special 8 featuring Mike Grell's The Warlord. Now, before we get to the issue, uh, if you didn't catch this uh, in the news or on Twitter, Danger Street, the maxi series, the 12 issue maxi series that was going to be released bi monthly starting in May, is delayed. Tom King, the writer, posted on Twitter, Danger Street has not been canceled, just rescheduled. This book is becoming something very big and very special, and we're making sure it's done right. Jorge Fernez is drawing right now, and it is so damn breathtaking. So apparently there was a rumor that, uh, well, it wasn't a rumor. It was because, you know, the, the that trashy, Rumor site uh, always has clickbait headlines, and it made it sound like it was canceled, but it's not canceled, it's just being rescheduled. So, I thought I was going to have to double up on taking a look at these issues because, um, uh, you know, we're getting close to May. But if it's going to be delayed, that means I can continue the issue by issue look and take I- each issue as it comes. So the warlord making his first appearance here in first issue special number eight uh now the uh he does go on to get a series shortly after this obviously that ran for uh you know over a 100 issues i think yeah 133 issues until 1988 it started uh probably at the end of 1975 That's when the first issue came out, and then there was an eight-month hiatus until issue two, and then it would pick up with issue three. Uh, So even though first issue special uh, was conceived as a way to introduce all of these new properties to possibly get ongoing series, the decision to give Warlord a series had already been made by the time this issue came out. So in many ways it's acting as as an issue zero or some kind of uh, prelude or preview issue. Now my experience with Warlord uh, is because I had a few of those early issues from my uncle who gave me his comics, most of them being farmer's market comics, meaning that their half their covers were ripped off. So I had a scattered bunch of warlord issues. I may still have them in my collection, but they they um they have full covers actually. And I remember looking through them, uh, sword and sorcery, fantasy, barbarian stuff has never really been a genre that I I I really enjoyed, but the artwork was beautiful. And I would collect warlord in the mid 80s for, you know, a handful of issues. I think this was during the Dan Dan Jurgen stuff. Then there was a mini-series that came out later where Mike Rel did the covers, and I, I did collect that. And then there was another series with Bart Sears uh, that I don't think lasted long, and I, I collected maybe the first three issues of that. So we're here, first issue special. Enter the Lost World of the Warlord. Uh, we have a Mike Rel cover. And it's Warlord fighting a dinosaur, and there's a female companion also attacking. Lots of swords, lots of blood, a primeval forest, as it's called, inside the issue. All very classic Warlord stuff. I have to say, this is probably uh, also another favorite so far uh, from all of the first issue special issues. And certainly in terms of the art, it feels the most modern. Even though the Kirby issues are great, you know, Atlas and Manhunter and the dingbats of Danger Street, um, and Kirby is very 70s, you know, I mean, that's that's his time at DC was in the 70s, but there's something about this Mike Grell artwork compared to what we've just seen that I'm like, oh, okay, this is good. I can, you know, I could see people gravitating to this book, uh, reading the story it's very derivative. I mean, it's it's every Edgar Rice Burroughs story. It's every uh, who's the creator of Conan Robert something. Um, I can't remember. It has you know the main character finding his way into a strange land like Flash Gordon, like Buck Rogers, meeting the locals meeting through through somebody you know either a man or a woman. Uh, coming before a king. Of course, there's an evil priest in the character of Deimos. You know, it's, you know, it's all very derivative. even to the point where, you know, he's he is Travis Morgan, the warlord. He is a a lieutenant colonel in United States Air Force. And when he goes in front of the king and makes his way to one of the cities, uh, he eventually winds up getting, a costume or local garb just like everybody else and he's in his first quote-unquote warlord uniform by the middle of the issue and he you know it has again it has all the trappings you know uh, they don't speak the language but he's able to learn the language very quickly um, it ends with him and his female companion Tara on the run because she believes that Demos, the evil priest, is up to something bad. Uh, and it's it hits a lot of the beats that I've read elsewhere. But I'm probably interested in it because um, I have read some Warlord issues, and eventually it does get tied into the larger DC universe. And just Warlord at DC itself is kind of interesting to me. You know, this, this title that lasted over 100 issues... Uh, a different genre than superheroes, and eventually, because of the crisis, those sword and sorcery comics, those war comics, those horror comics eventually faded away. But um, this is a title that I've always wanted to read, and uh, it had some backups. Uh, Conqueror of, Conquerors of the Barren Earth, it had some OMAC backups, which I've been collecting, because I love OMAC. And here we are, you know, I'm finally reading Warlord's first appearance. So as I mentioned, uh, he is a United States Air Force uh, Lieutenant Colonel. He's on a mission over Russia to investigate a secret installment. Uh, They don't even, they don't say what for, um, or a secret installation, excuse me. And then he comes under attack. He has to uh, make an emergency landing over the North Pole into Alaska but doesn't get so far when his ship encounters something that makes all the systems go haywire and he crashes down he believes somewhere in the Yukon Territory but actually winds up in this land of lush jungle and an eternal uh, noonday sun that's always straight up right in... um, uh, you know, above everybody, creating, uh, you know, tremendous heat. And I love that description. So let me see some things here. Um, this all happens on June 16th, 1969, according to the uh, first page. However, when he actually, actually lands, um, we learn that time really doesn't mean anything here. In fact, there's a scene later, where he finally he, wind, he winds up in the city uh, where this king is, and he falls asleep. He's totally clean-shaven. And when he wakes up, he has long hair, and he has his typical warlord beard and mustache and facial hair. And it's because, again, time has no meaning here. So he crash-lands into this jungle. Um, he quickly notices that there is no horizon, because as the description says here, the land just curves gradually upwards because he's supposed to be at the center of the earth. We find that out later in the issue. He believes he's in the center of the earth. So that would mean the quote unquote horizon will constantly curve because you're on the inside of the earth. It's kind of like the Dyson sphere inside the Dyson sphere in that Next Generation episode on Star Trek with Scotty or I believe at the end of Interstellar they go on to some kind of ship that uh, the the inside kind of curves and you see all of the the grass and all that stuff. And that's why the sun is always at noon because it's held in the middle of the Earth by all of the gravity, this, this ball of gas he calls it. So I like that description I, and I wonder if that's carried over into the series that the horizon quote-unquote or as you look off into the distance the land is constantly curving upwards i think as a visual that's amazing and i hope that continues um i didn't mention yes this issue is written and illustrated by mike Grell, edited by joe orlando i also like the narrative on the very first page here Uh, Survival, the most fundamental of human dramas. It takes a special breed of man to stand in the face of overwhelming odds in a world where merely staying alive is the greatest challenge of all. This is the epic tale of such a man. They call him the Warlord. Here's a comment about the time. In this place, in a world where time does not exist, a year of pleasure might seem but a fleeting moment, and a moment of agony and eternity. So eventually he comes across some noise. He sees a woman being attacked by a dinosaur. She's got a sword. She's got a knife. She's got a loincloth. She's straight out of Conan the Barbarian. Uh, but seeing someone like that implies some kind of civilization. And he winds up finding the dinosaur, and um, it's funny, the cover, the splash page, and this interior panel on page nine are all kind of the same, where it's him finding this dinosaur with Tara somewhere on in the image. And it almost looks like if he drew the splash page first, or this panel first, he then used it for the other, whichever one came first, but the inks are a little different, so... I don't know what the process is there. Eventually they are overrun by some armored guards who stop in fear because Travis Morgan has a gun. So they take him to the city, the city of Thera, and that's where he meets the king and he meets the high priest Demos, who doesn't, you know, who right away has evil plans for Travis. Again, Travis fires his bullet uh, because Demos is trying to do something to him with this orb. And that garners him some favor because they think it's some kind of magic. And that's when he gets all cleaned up and taken away. And then he wakes up and he has all this beard stuff. And he looks like the warlord that you may know from from DC Comics. So eventually he learns a language. He learns everybody's name. Tara, she's from the land of Shambhala. The whole world is called Skartaris. There's a fire mountain. There's a blood god, etc. And out of nowhere, Travis explains that he realizes what's going on. That he believes that he is in the middle of the earth with the sun being this giant ball of gas in the middle. And I'm like, okay, why do you think that? <laughs> is it just because of the curvature of the land? Or is it because you were going over the North Pole? And the way he explains it, he feels like maybe I fell into this giant hole that I didn't realize. And it's kind of like... um. Uh, where's your proof, you know? It's interesting because that's the premise of the Warlord, and that's the premise that I've always known until they change it later, is that he is in, quote-unquote, the center of the Earth. But I thought maybe there would be a little more proof to that other than just him just assuming that. So I can see why later they would change it to be, no, it's not the center of the Earth, but some other dimension, I think they call it. Eventually, he's attacked in his sleep, so Tara and and Travis decide to run away, and they're going to meet up with her father somewhere. And then that's where the issue ends. And, you know, again, at every end of first issue special, they say, hey, if you want to see more, write in. But there already was going to be a series. From the text page, uh, we learn a couple things. Mike Grell's name is Michael John Grell even his name is kind of like an adventurer name it's like John Carter John Michael Carter warlord of mars isn't isn't that what that is i don't remember he was born september 13 1947 in wisconsin he didn't have a tv until he was 8 he grew up on radio dramas in 1967 he got married and joined the air force serving as an illustrator and then in 1970 he said he discovered comics Oddly enough, the Green Lantern and Green Arrow title decided he wanted to be in comics. Uh, He got into commercial art in Chicago in 1972, where he was trying to sell some strips he was working on, and he wound up uh, assisting Dale Messick on Brenda Starr. 1973, he goes to New York trying to sell something called the Savage Empire. He meets Alan Sherman and Irv Novick. Four months later, he meets Julia Schwartz and Joe Orlando, and he walks out of DC Comics with an Aquaman script, which might be Adventure Comics 435, because that, because that one is pretty early in his career, even though uh, there's a few Superboy and Legion of Superheroes issues that predate that Aquaman issue. And then, of course, that Savage Empire strip, he reworks it, and that's where we get Warlord. So how does it fit into Danger Street? Well, Warlord is one of the three main characters, Starman, Metamorpho, and Warlord, as they try to prove themselves worthy of joining the Justice League uh, by summoning and defeating Darkseid. And I do know later in the Warlord series, I guess it was during Legends and all the crossover stuff, uh, D'Saad had come to Skataris. During all of that, and encountered Travis Morgan. I don't remember those issues, uh, but I do remember reading them at the time. So there's, you know, a little New Gods connection there. Although I don't, I don't assume that Tom, uh, Tom King is going to follow through on all that. Um, certainly, the world of Skartaris could play a factor into the premise of the series as they travel around you know, meeting princesses and knights and all kinds of monsters. Jorge Fernes provided artwork with the three main characters for one of the covers, and you see Warlord there in the costume that he's wearing uh, pretty much for this first issue special appearance. So, um, you know, because he's he's had several looks. The other look that he gets later is probably more familiar where he's bare chested and there's a lot, there's a loincloth and the winged helmet, but the costume he wears for this issue and for Danger Street is, is uh, (laughs) a little more subtle. (laughs) So yeah, good issue though. I, I liked it. I really did like it. And, um, I guess it's a no brainer, you know, um, they even talk about somewhere about how it's rare for one person to do everything. For a comic, but Mike Grell coming out of uh you know his early uh experience strong. And uh as I said, I, I kind of want to read the rest of it. So so there you go. There's your look at warlord for first issue special number eight. As always, email me peter at thedailyrios.com, go visit the website the Daily Rios, go visit the Instagram, the Daily Rios, go visit me on Twitter, Peter J Rios. Find me on your favorite podcast catcher. And if I'm not there, let me know. Send me some promos. Those of you who are podcasters or or you create comics and you have a promo, let me know. I'll play it. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 556, the 41st Digest, for Sunday, April 17th, 2022. Talk to you soon.
1: Welcome to the Time Variance Authority. Miss Minutes, and it's my job to catch you up before you stand trial for your crimes. So let's not waste another minute. Settle in, sharpen your pencils, and check this
2: out.